Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Jenna doesn't just do reads either. Look at jennaingle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order. That's DISH, all caps, at jennaingle.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. recording. I'm tired. I'm wearing a t-shirt. You're wearing a sweater with a scarf. (laughs) It's different. We're in different environments now. I know. I hate it. But you did call my sweater brown and it's a goldenrod. It looks brown right now. I'm telling the listeners right now. She was being shady. (laughs) I like your combination of black and brown. I like it. It is goldenrod. I would not mix black and brown. Black and brown together looks classy. That's a fashion faux pas. It is not. Listen, (laughs) my sweater is goldenrod. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. And it pairs quite nicely with the black scarf that I have adorned around my neck because it is a rainy day in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) Don't ask the double read players. Yeah, no kidding. To give fashion tips. An oboist and a bassoonist break down the latest trends of fall 2020. So you want a black cardigan and a black tank top. Don't forget the black socks. (laughs) And black shoes. (laughs) I always liked being able to wear color. Like our contemporary ensemble in grad school, the director would always say black pants and then a bright colored top. And the musicians would like short circuit. They'd be like, do not own bright colors and (laughs) would like still show up in black and black or like everyone would go buy a blue shirt. And then you'd come in in hot pink and you're like, guys. For real. I'd be like, can we wear prints? Must it be a solid? I mean, if we're mixing things up, really. Do not take any of the fashion advice that you've heard from us today. (laughs) <laughs> <Who> are you? 
I'm great. I'm great. It is a thousand degrees outside and I just had a nice day. We did a lunchtime walk so that, you know, the pups could get their energy out today. It was delightful. The joys of working from home. People have been asking me, like, what are your dogs going to do when you go back physically to work full time? I'm like, what are they going to do? What am I going to do? What about my separation anxiety? (laughs) For real, though, that is something I have thought about. It will have been with the following summer, nearly two years of working from home or being off of the school year. It'll almost feel bizarre to go back. I'm, you're asking me to leave my house? <laughs> Why? No. <laughs> well, you had the idea today to talk about right now, maybe the end is not in sight. But I think that most of us who are teaching or even taking school online right now are kind of making mental notes, mm-hmm. especially when it's like, oh, this is kind of cool. This would be cool to keep going. I, I would hate to lose this as we adapt back to, to face and to face instruction. What are some of those things for you? Oh man, the Zoom master classes yeah. are incredible. I'll tell you what, the possibilities of inviting people that I would never get to come here. <laughs> it's awesome. And as you know, Jackie, I am not the easiest traveler. (laughs) (laughs) Like the idea of being able to interact with students Mm -hmm. anywhere that Mm -hmm. has an internet connection without having to leave my dogs, I mean home, is amazing. Yeah, definitely. And to your point, this was always available. It's not something we have to Mm -hmm. stop. It was just something that we weren't necessarily doing. And Obviously, I think everyone is looking forward to being able to travel again, but you are right that with logistics and money and Mm -hmm. having to, okay, how many makeup lessons will I teach if I'm gone this many days and such and such, it can limit the number of things that we can do. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are people I've been able to collaborate with and have screen time with that I feel much more connected to during this pandemic than I would have normally. And that would be cool to continue and to mix in. Yeah, a thousand percent. And uh, so what I had been doing pre-core is writing lesson notes in my notebook and then having students take a picture of it (laughs) before they leave. 1,000% I did that too. (laughs) But now I'm using OneNote, which I just tippy type it in and then they have access to it i do like a lesson notes tab a practice video tab a uh, listening links tab so that i know that they have listened to their jury pieces because i put those videos in there their uh, read journal tab questions for dr k tab like it's so organized it's fantastic That's awesome. Yeah. What are you going to keep? Well, one thing that um, we've been doing at WSU is obviously performances through Zoom, including convocation hour and area time and studio time. And the 
feedback for a performance is for a live performer or, or whatever is typically applause and that's it right you perform and then you get people clapping and then you leave mm-hmm. and with the chat function at least at the school of music oh. here the students and the faculty are giving specific positive comments and being really thoughtful oh beautiful tone oh that that was lovely contrast oh this is such an exciting piece wow beautiful wow. and it it's so <clears throat> cool and there is time and we've talked about this on the podcast before too is that there's time for feedback and learning and constructive thoughts from your teacher and that as a music student it's sometimes hard to balance that because the emphasis is always on progress as it should be but through the chat function in watching performances together as a learning community and those positive comments that they're giving each other i feel like there is more balance that they walk away from the performance not only with resources and self-reflection to tell themselves how to grow what they'd like to do differently but also those things ringing in their head of and and Abby told me how beautiful they thought my tone was and that goes right in the courage bank yes and mm-hmm. i thought oh man we're at least coming closer to achieving a balance here and i don't know exactly how to bring that into the face to face instruction uh, I don't think anyone's going to choose to perform via Zoom when we have the option. <laughs> but maybe it's just a matter of me making a mental note to give specific compliments more freely. I love that. Something like that. But that's one thing I've been like, whoa, this is super cool. And another super cool thing we have going on at Double Read Dish, our giveaway. So when you are listening to this, it is the final day. You have mere moments to get your (laughs) submission in we're closing it on october 15th and we've already gotten some cool stuff oh my god some of the submissions that we've gotten i'm like how did you do that (laughs) can you teach me how to do that we have literal like movie scenes multiple entries that are scenes from halloween or scary movies yeah reads acting out Don't give it away. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) But they're like, we'll get an entry and then we'll just text back and forth like, oh Oh my God. God. (laughs) Well, we've decided this has to be an annual tradition. It's got to be annual. I can only see the stakes rising. We're going to have voting starting on the 16th. Yes, this is a community effort. Yes, it will be uh, election or who wins. So yeah, keep an eye out on our social media so you can yep. vote. You're for... definitely going to want to look out for these and you're definitely going to want to vote. And you're going to have to start brainstorming about what you're going to submit next year. There's no age limit. No. You can submit year after year after year until you're a thousand years old. Yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> Uh 
Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Loray artist and solo English horn with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, Carolyn Hove. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Thank you so much for having me. Our favorite first question to ask to get to know our guests is, can you tell us how you came to your instrument? But with you, even though it might be a longer story, we'd be interested in hearing how you started to play, I assume, the oboe, and then found your way to being an enthusiast of the English horn. Great question. Uh, I started playing the oboe when I was about 10 years old. Maybe I was nine. I don't really remember. My parents were musicians, and so I was surrounded by classical music from before day one. So the oboe, I decided on the oboe because I had tried the violin years earlier, and that was absolutely not for me. But my mother told me that the oboe was a solo instrument and had really beautiful orchestral things to play. And I thought, okay, that sounds pretty great. And then when I announced to my parents that I had chosen to play the oboe, their reaction was, oh, no, not the oboe. (laughs) And my father said to me, he said, you know, you're going to have to make reeds and you're not going to want to do that. And of course, I knew nothing about reed making, but I, I pulled myself up as tall as I possibly could in my little teeny weeny body. And I said to him, I can make reeds, of course having no idea. But I chose the oboe um, because I thought it was a really beautiful instrument. Uh, My mother had also told me that it was very difficult. And I thought, okay, (laughs) let me at it. So that was how I started. And I was going to be a principal oboe player. Uh, When I was a student at Oberlin, I never played a note of the English horn. But After I graduated from Oberlin, I moved back to the Chicago area, which is, uh, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, and I started freelancing. And I was getting calls to play the oboe, but then I started getting calls to play the English horn. Well, number one, I didn't own an English horn, and number two, I had no idea what I was doing. I had started studying oboe with Grover Schiltz when I was a senior in high school. Grover was the English horn player in the Chicago Symphony for many, many years. And I worked with Grover in the summers when I would come home from Oberlin. 
And then when I graduated from Oberlin and went back to Chicago, I started studying with him again. And he said to me, you know, I've got an English horn that I'll sell you. So he sold me this fantastic old English horn. The serial number was AU70. It had belonged to John Minsker years ago. So he sold me this English horn. And I sort of learned a little bit how to make reeds. Uh, and I was playing it some. And then the English horn calls came more and more. And I thought, wow, I think I'm really enjoying this. But what really did it for me was back in, I don't know what year it was, maybe it was 1983 or 84. I was playing with the Chicago City Ballet. We were doing a run of Prokofiev's Ballet Cinderella. And the English horn part to that ballet is divine. And I realized that I was having so much fun playing the English horn and I was having so much more fun playing the English horn than playing the oboe that it really got my attention. And Grover and his wife, Bev, came to one of the performances and Grover called me later and he said, you did a really good job. In the third act of the ballet, there's a beautiful Oriental that has an amazing English horn solo, just a sweet little English horn solo. And that's kind of what did it for me. Then fast forward a couple of years and the English horn and assistant principal oboe job was open in the San Antonio. So I called Grover and I said, Grover, we need to turn me into an English horn player this summer because I really want that job in San Antonio. And this was about May and the audition was going to happen in September. So he said, okay, great, come next week and be ready to play, you know, this, that, and the other thing, whatever it was. And so the entire summer, I did nothing but work on the English horn. And I won the audition in San Antonio and spent just over a year there. And then the position opened up in the LA Philharmonic in April of 1988. And I won that audition and the rest is history. And um, I love being an English horn player. I love the oboe, but I love the English horn more. And I think for me, the independence of the English horn chair is something that works well with my personality. Plus the fact that I'm in a solo chair. Sometimes I'm playing with the violas. Sometimes I'm playing with the horns. I love the inner voices and I love the alto voice of the English horn. I have a couple of follow-up <laughs> questions. <laughs> I told you I was going to ramble, and I did. <laughs> it's perfect. My little mind gears were turning as you were talking. Okay. So you had mentioned not owning an English horn and, you know, wanting to get some more gigs, and some gigs were asking for English horn. And I have been in some situations where they hire an oboist for a gig, and you get the music, and there's English horn music in the folder, but it wasn't specified at the beginning. And so there is a certain level of stress <laughs> about acquiring an English horn, especially because it traditionally is considered an auxiliary instrument, which I would love to get into with you later in the interview, because I know you've done a lot of work with um, uh, expanding the repertoire for the English horn. And there is a cost prohibitive element to owning an oboe and an English horn. So I wonder if you could give us any advice on uh, or insight or anything on perhaps what to look for in an English horn 
used um, what are the innovations that are coming out on the market now that perhaps make that gap a little bit easier to bridge? Is there any advice that you would have for people who are perhaps struggling with finances on the gig scene um, and also wanting to accept those gigs that ask for English horn also? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Really, really good questions. First of all, I would say to any player, do not feel that you have to buy a brand new English horn. My first English horn, like I said, it was very, very old. It was a fantastic instrument. I loved it. I couldn't afford a brand new English horn when I was 23 or 24 years old and just out of school. I was lucky, you know, Grover was there to sell me one. So the first thing is do not be afraid to buy a used instrument. However, if you have a repair person that you can trust, get it to that repair person and have them really look at it and give you an honest evaluation. Maybe it needs to have a complete overhaul. Maybe it needs only a little bit of work. Most times with instruments, they're not sealing properly. And so the first thing you have to do is get the English horn and the oboe sealing properly so that you can get a clear sense of, is this a good instrument? Is it not a good instrument? Secondly, the vocal is a big, big important component of the instrument. Now, the vocals that come along with it might not be very good. So if you have access to try several different vocals on the horn, that can make all the difference in the world. You can have a great English horn and a terrible vocal and the English horn is going to sound terrible. You know, you can have a mediocre English horn and a great vocal and the English horn is going to sound significantly better. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you have access to an English horn player who you respect, get the horn to that person and ask them if they would please take a look at it and play it for you. I do that a lot. People contact me, can I swing by and I'm thinking about buying this English horn. Would you play it and let me know? So those are important things, I think. Horns are not inexpensive, but we have options now. We have more options now than we used to have, and that's exciting. So does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any more specific advice about types of vocals that, I don't, you may not want to get into this, but vocals that you have found to be excellent in the past? Okay. I want to back up and you had asked me about things to look for in an English horn. I'd also like to back up and talk about, we want a nice tone and an even tone. Uh, you want something that you feel that you can blow through that doesn't have either too much resistance or too little resistance. Now, a vocal can go a long way towards helping that. But if you pick up an English horn and if the instrument is sealing properly and it's really wonky in terms of intonation, you probably don't want that horn because you'll probably have to spend an enormous amount of time and expense working on getting the instrument tuned. And maybe you've got somebody who could do a good job of that. Maybe you don't. So that's kind of the key to, does the instrument line up fairly well? And of course, for new instruments, they should be fairly well in tune. 
assuming that you have the funds that you can buy a new English horn. Okay, to your question about vocals. Vocals, it's a very, very, very personal choice. Everyone is looking for something different. And with vocals, what I have found, so much of it depends on the kind of reed, the shape. If you're playing on a narrower shape, a smaller reed, you can play on a vocal that is not quite as big and ringy. For me, I happen to play on a Gilbert one shape. I've been using it for eons. That's a fairly wide shape for some people. And I play in an orchestra that has 106 people in it. I have to be able to produce sound. What I have found, and I've been playing on these vocals for years, I love the Tom Hineker vocals. They're made here in the States. He has, I can't even tell you how many different vocals he makes. I have ones that I particularly like, but they work well for my English horns. The nice thing now these days is that we have choices for vocals. That didn't used to be the case. We had Lorraine vocals for Lorraine English horns. There were some Laubin vocals. Um, there were a few others. Uh, there were Glover vocals that were out, but we didn't have much choice. Then things changed. Howarth really got into making different kinds of vocals. And I played on Howarth vocals for a long time. Many vocal makers are experimenting. Um, Phil Ross, who plays in the uh, St. Louis Symphony, was making vocals. Um, John Simer in Philadelphia has made vocals. Mark Chudnow, my repairman god and dear friend, made vocals for years. So we have options. But again, I need to reiterate that just because somebody says, oh, this is a really great vocal, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a great vocal on your English horn and with your reed. Right. And this is really, really important. We don't have to think about that on the oboe, but we really have to think about it on the English horn. Absolutely. Thank you. That is very good advice that I will personally take into my next vocal purchase. <laughs> Um, okay, so my next follow-up question for you is, how do you see the role of the English hornist in the orchestra? It's soloist and it's blendy, and what makes for a great English horn player? I see the role of the English horn player as prim primarily a solo chair. I'm still part of the oboe section, and I need to work very closely with the oboe section, which I do. The inner voices are an awful lot of fun. I think any English horn player who really loves the instrument will tell you how much fun it is to play with the violas and how much fun it can be to play with the French horn. The thing that has frustrated me for many years, and I know I am not alone in this sentiment, is this feeling or this opinion that somehow if you're an English horn player, you're secondary and you're an English horn player because you really can't play the oboe. Now, years and years ago, it used to be that principal oboe players would move down to the English horn when their days were over. That's not the case at all anymore. What has been very exciting is the level to which we have elevated the importance of the English horn in the orchestra. And a number of us have done that 
by commissioning works, by getting to IDRS conferences and playing recitals and giving master classes. I also believe that part of the problem all these years was that there weren't very many teachers and performers who really were able to teach the English horn in such a way that their students could embrace the instrument and understand the differences between the oboe and the English horn and how to deal with those differences. And for me, that has been something that I've tried very hard to do over the years. You're probably aware that I had my masterclass series for 10 years, the English horn masterclasses. And that was a lot of fun because I was able to bring students of all ages and levels together and really do an intensive study of the English horn. And everyone went away feeling far more confident as English horn players. And that was my goal. I assume that that informed your activity in recording and commissioning works. Can you talk to us a little bit about your album projects and your efforts in uh, helping to forge an identity as the English horn as a solo instrument? The reason that I started making recordings, and I believe my first CD on Crystal came out in 1996, I did this because as a student, there were very few recordings available. And as an English horn player, I had access to an excellent recording space at Pomona College out here in the Los Angeles area. And I wanted to get people interested in the English horn, I wanted to expose them to some literature that perhaps they didn't know. So that was why I began to make these recordings. And the first one was primarily English horn with a little bit of oboe. The second one was chamber music for English horn. And that was a fun project to do. And then the third one that I did, which was released in 2011, that's Eclecticism, is my favorite of the three, because I was really able to choose composers that I really loved and felt that I had interesting repertoire that people would like to perform on their own recitals. So that was kind of the genesis of the recordings. In terms of the commissioning, as soon as my first recording was released, composers started to contact me with scores and letting me know about pieces that they had composed, which was wonderful because I believe that we need to support 20th and 21st century composers. I'm a new music person and I love new music and I felt that this was a way of encouraging more composers to write for the English horn, to give us a broader repertoire, and to hopefully, again, my goal has been to get people more excited about playing the English horn and produce a whole new crop of fabulous English horn players. To that end, since you're this English horn advocate diplomat, and if someone <laughs> is listening, in addition to checking out your recordings, is there a work or two that you want to shout out to our 
oboe and English horn playing listeners, uh, you got to check out these. If you're questioning uh, a pro English horn solo recital setting stance, these this work will convince you. Do you have any of those? I could list many of them, but I think what I would rather do is direct everyone to my website, which is carolynhovemusic.com, because I have an extensive repertoire list there of pieces for English horn and piano, English horn and strings, solo English horn. I'm revamping that list. And I did at the request of an English horn player a few months ago, I actually put a list on my website of like my top 12 favorite recital pieces, okay. things that I have enjoyed playing. However, in going through my repertoire and getting ready to update my list, I have found so many more. So I don't think I want to sing single out any one composer, but I do want to also mention in addition to my CDs, uh, the piece I commissioned from Alyssa Morris, called Chrysalis for English horn and piano that I recorded in 2016. It is not on the CD. It's only available for a digital download, but that piece is an awful lot of fun. Alyssa and I had a good time on that project. But again, like I said, there are, there are so many more wonderful composers who have written for the English horn and I hope they'll continue to write. What kind of growth have you seen, you know, besides your one woman superhero push <laughs> to elevate the English horn in the repertoire? What progress have you seen um, worldwide? Has Have you noticed a change where the English horn is becoming more of a destination instrument? That's a difficult question for me to answer because I'm so biased for the English horn. But I do believe that the opinion is changing, that the English horn is absolutely worth studying and studying seriously. When I got my job in the LA Philharmonic in 1988, it was the first big opening that had happened in a number of years. So naturally there was a lot of competition for that position. Shortly thereafter, a number of positions in American orchestras for English horn opened up and they were very rapidly filled by terrific players who are serious English horn players. So I view that as a step in the right direction. Certainly the master classes that I've done, my own series and the master classes that I have done around the world, I see a level of seriousness in the students that is very heartening. And I think, well, I know so many times people have said to me, I love the oboe, but I love the English horn more. So I do believe that we are on the right path towards elevating the English horn to the position that it deserves. If somebody is interested in seriously becoming an English horn player, do you believe that they should shift their focus more completely to the English horn, is it possible to be equally fabulous at both oboe and English horn? I'm asking because I notice when I go back and forth, the voicing is incredibly different 
to me. And so I'm wondering if you have any advice for if you're interested in becoming a ser serious English horn player, do you have to kind of pump the brakes on the oboe a little bit? Or is it possible to do both at the same time? That's a fabulous question. And it's something that I've thought about a great deal. I don't know that the person has been born yet who can play the oboe and the English horn equally well at a super, 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 super high level. I don't know that that person has been born yet. I think we gravitate towards one or the other. That being said, I don't think that one has to put the brakes on playing the oboe in order to be a great English horn player. But what I do feel is very important is to work with a serious English horn player who can really show you and teach you what you need to know. I was very fortunate because Grover was my teacher in Chicago and I was able to work for an entire summer just on the English horn with him. That made all the difference in the world. Now, granted, I learned a lot on my own. I mean, when you get into a big orchestra job, you learn by doing. But I, I would say that for any player who's really serious about working on the English horn, if they have the luxury of taking a few months to really focus on the English horn, that would be incredibly beneficial. I also wanted to follow up on what you said about the voicing. That is very legitimate. Uh, it's a legitimate concern. I know that when I play the English horn, I feel like I'm wearing my favorite pair of jeans. It's so comfortable. When I pick up the oboe, it feels small and tight, like I'm wearing a pair of jeans that's at least one size too small. And I don't quite have the answer of how to make that easier, except that certainly in my job in the Philharmonic, I play both oboe and English horn, and I've gotten fairly good at switching back and forth during an orchestral piece. But if you ask me to prepare an oboe recital, that would take an enormous amount of work for me because I'm an English horn player. That's the way I gravitate. But again, I think you can get an enormous amount of information and really begin to get your questions answered and to feel more comfortable if you can take the time to work with a serious English horn player. I would just like to follow that up by saying that I believe it's unfortunate that at a lot of universities and colleges, they do not offer a semester of English horn study. I think that's a real disservice, especially if the university or college is located in a major city that has a major symphony orchestra. It seems to me that that would be very helpful to those oboists who really would like to dig into the English horn to have that opportunity. Definitely. You have been in a major symphony orchestra for over 30 years. That is a experience that most of us musicians will never be able to have. And we find our listeners are always really curious about uh, what that reality is like. So I'd love to shift some, to some questions about your job. And of my question would be, um, have you found that it has changed 
over the years? Do you feel a shift in the ensemble when you get a new music director or um, have you experienced any um, differences or growth over the course of your career in the ensemble? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, when I look back to the player I was in 1988 when I joined the Philharmonic, I had a lot to learn. I knew a lot of the repertoire, but some of it I had never played on the English horn. I'd played it on the oboe when I was an oboist. So I was kind of thrown in to the fire, especially my first summer, which is kind of a funny story at the Hollywood Bowl. Every concert that we did that summer had a major English horn piece on it. The only two English horn solos that I did not play that first summer was the Swan of Twinella and Shostakovich 8. It seemed like everything else, every big solo came for every concert. So for me, I was put into, into a situation of you're either going to sink or you're going to swim. And I recall that entire first summer that I was just nervous for every rehearsal and every concert because it was a big job. It was a very different thing. And to your question about playing with different colleagues, yes, it matters who you're sitting next to. It matters who is in the woodwind section and how well you work together. I've seen changes over the years. Fortunately, we've had some wonderful players join the LA Philharmonic. I've got some great colleagues who are terrific musicians, so I'm very fortunate in that way. When I first joined the LA Philharmonic, Andre Previn was the music director. He's the one who hired me. And he had a particular sound in the orchestra. Then Esapekka Salonen came in. And we had Esapekka for 17 years, which was phenomenal. And we did a lot of new music and we had a very different sound in the orchestra. We did a, it was a very organized, very tightly knit ensemble that was terrific. We did a lot of wonderful tours, a lot of great recordings. It was quite the era. Vanessa Pekka left and our current music director, Gustavo Dudamel came in. Gustavo is a lovely, lovely man. And his strengths are very different from Esapekka's. So the orchestra sounds very different now and he looks for a different type of player. So yes, there's been a lot of growth and a lot of change. In terms of me as a player, I've done this for so many years that Generally speaking, I'm not nervous for concerts anymore, unless it's something that is one of my pieces that I would really rather not have to play all the time. Um, but I think when you're working at the level and with the kind of schedule that we maintain, you get used to just focusing and showing up and being ready to do your job. And in some ways it gets easier in other ways, it doesn't. I mean, for me, my standards are pretty high, so I'm pretty pretty tough on myself as a critic. So I haven't, I haven't kind of relaxed and gotten lazy in my job. I'm still trying to figure out how I can make it better. How can I play this more beautifully? How can I sound a different way? How can I add different colors to the textures? That kind of thing. Does that answer your question? Definitely. And I wonder how that experience informs how you listen to auditions as a part now of a hiring committee. And if you have any advice for our listeners who are um, on the audition circuit and pursuing their position. 
That is an absolutely fantastic question, and I'm really glad that you asked it. <laughs> I've sat on audition committees for many instruments in the LA Philharmonic over the years. And when I was on the audition circuit as a young player, I made a lot of mistakes because I don't feel that I was always as prepared as I needed to be. And I changed my way of preparation, and then I started to win auditions. The first is that you need to know the repertoire inside and outside, backwards and forwards, not just the part that you're playing, but you need to know what is going on in the orchestra around you. So that when you are on that stage, what really helped me is I studied recordings. I would, when I got on the stage to take the audition, I felt like I had the orchestra all around me. So that instead of just playing a solo line, I was trying to play it the way that I would play it in the orchestra and that made a huge difference. So that kind of preparation cannot be dismissed. The second thing is, at least in the LA Philharmonic, and I think this is probably true for other orchestras, candidates need to realize that the audition committees want to hear the candidates play well. We want people to come on, on the stage and knock it out of the park. Mm -hmm. We're not hoping that people fall on their faces. It's excruciating when that happens. We want people to come and do their best. But unfortunately, in an audition circumstance, it's not a natural circumstance. And so you always have to think about rhythm, pacing, intonation, all of these things that matter. And sometimes we feel a little bit straitjacketed as candidates for an audition because you have to be so careful. But I know that what I look for in a candidate, and it doesn't really matter whether it's an oboe audition or a violin audition or a brass audition, I'm looking for somebody who to come out on the stage and do something that gets my attention, something that's special maybe take a little bit of a risk and definitely show again that you really understand the repertoire. You understand the piece that you're playing and the context in which you are playing it. That I cannot emphasize enough. The other thing that Grover used to say to me when I was a young player, he said, you know, when you're getting ready for auditions, he said, you have to be so prepared that you could fall out of bed in the morning and pick up your oboe and play tombow perfectly. And at that time I thought, oh yeah, right. But then I realized he was right because the stress of playing an audition is monumental for anyone who's ever done it. And you have to be so prepared and so convinced that even when you are nervous, even when you don't know the hall, and especially in the case of us double read players, you have no idea how your read is going to behave, especially if you live at high altitude and you're coming down to sea level to play or vice versa, if you live at sea level and you're going up to high altitude. So you have to have as many of the variables under control as humanly possible so that you can walk out on stage and do your very best. The final thing that I would like to say is that you have to believe in yourself and you have to believe that you deserve to be heard by the audition committee. 
that doesn't mean that you can be arrogant and think that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and walk out on the stage and say, hey, here I am, aren't I great? No. But you need to believe that you have done the work, especially if you have done the work, that you deserve to be heard. Those are all very important audition thoughts, tips that I have. Oh, one more, one more. Any of us who've taken auditions, time warps. It's a very strange sensation when one is taking an audition. And certainly mistakes that I made early on when I was taking auditions, I would rush too quickly from one excerpt to the next. And I wasn't settled and set to go from playing Brahms to Beethoven to Mussorgsky to Rimsky-Korsakov, you know, fill in the blank. So give yourself that extra couple of seconds to really switch gears so that you can switch styles and make your presentation convincing. That is fantastic advice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, now I would like to ask a very important question. What's that? Which is... um, have you had any particularly exciting celebrity sightings backstage during your uh, orchestral career in LA? Well, <laughs> um, the first thing I have to say is that living in LA, uh, I'm, I'm not a Hollywood, I'm not a lover of Hollywood, first of all. So you probably could get a better answer from other people. Yes, there have been some people in the audience that I have seen, you know, Tom Hanks was there years ago. Henry Winkler has been there on a number of occasions. Uh, I think Harrison Ford was there for a children with his wife and their kid um, years ago. But I have to say that what has been more meaningful to me is some of the legends and the artists that I've had the opportunity to work with over the years. I'm a big jazz fan. So years ago, we did a program at the Hollywood Bowl with Tony Bennett and Katie Lang. And I was in seventh heaven because I happened to love Tony Bennett. We did a 75th anniversary, I believe it was 75th anniversary program at the bowl for Stephen Sondheim, who is also one of my gods. Wow. <laughs> and what's really fantastic about that is that so many of his artists and actors were there singing songs. And, you know, Angela Lansbury was there. And, and George Hearn, who, of course, was Sweeney, the Sweeney Todd of all Sweeney Todds. Um, Bernadette Peters, you know, his very famous soprano. Um, Jason Alexander was there and he was really cute. I didn't even recognize him for the, uh, in the, uh, rehearsal cause he had a baseball hat on and it's like, wait a minute, that's Jason Alexander. And he was <laughs> so having the opportunity to work with these legends has been thrilling. And that doesn't even begin to talk about all of the incredible soloists and conductors that I've had the opportunity to work with over the years. So it's been a constant source of inspiration. That's for sure. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, similarly, our next question is about a favorite memory that you've had over the years. So yeah, is there a 
particular performance or collaboration or tour or something that sticks out in your mind as, wow, that was really special? There have been many. The first thing that I would like to say about that is my first memory is, of course, winning the audition for my job, which was a mind-boggling experience. Um, this was in 1988, and there weren't very many women English horn players at that time. Julie Giacobassi was the English horn player in the San Francisco Symphony, and Treba Womble was the English horn player in the Detroit Symphony. And everybody else in the majors were men. And when we got to the finals, it was two men and me in the finals. And I thought, uh-uh, this isn't going to happen. They're going to pick one of these men. Well, we were, the three of us were sitting in my dressing room after we'd played our final, and the personnel manager came and asked the two men to follow him. And I thought, okay, well, they're going to give it to one of these men. And then the personnel manager came back and said to me, would you please come with me? And he took me out into the front of the hall, and this man started walking towards me. And I looked at him, I thought, that's Andre Previn. I recognize him from the television. He came up to me, and he said, we really liked your playing and we'd like to offer you the job. And I went, oh. and at that moment, David Weiss, our former principal Lobo player, took the photo of Previn offering me my job. And I was so excited and so floored that my head started to spin. And I said, I need to sit down. And of course the entire committee just completely cracked up and thought, this is really very funny. <laughs> that was my first Philharmonic memory. Yeah. But, um, it's hard to pick other specific memories, although there is one that stands out. And that was a program with Esapeka conducting. We were doing the Bartok Bluebeard's Castle, which is such an incredible piece of music. And we were doing it in a, I guess it was sort of a slight, it was a concert version, but they were doing a lot with lighting and so it was very, it's such a creepy piece anyway. It's so wonderful. But there's a moment when Judith opens the door and to the room that's completely filled with gold. And there's this amazing chord in the orchestra. And at that moment, the lighting on the stage just blazed to show this incredible room of filled with gold. And I remember at that time, just absolutely getting chills and you know the goosebumps and the chills up my spine and my eyes were like tearing up because it was such such an amazing musical moment. That one I remember. Um, good heavens, I've done the Swan of Tuanella. I don't even know how many times with Esapaca and every single time it's been a lot of fun. I've been really fortunate because every season there are moments that are terrific. Well, you know, those are gorgeous and we're so happy that you shared them with us and i wonder if i can entice you to share with us perhaps an embarrassing memory that happened in a performance or something <laughs> that went wrong something to make us feel better about ourselves i do have a memory and it, it I'm not responsible for it, but one horrifying memory yes, was yes, yes. in Paris. <laughs> I'm tingling with excitement. Yeah, and <laughs> I don't remember what year, but we were, oh, it might have been, 
that residency in 1996, I don't remember. But we were playing and Pierre Boulez was going to be conducting us. And I had my English horn on the, on the peg and somebody came by and my English horn got knocked off the peg and onto the riser on the side of it that was all of the keys. And so I couldn't play that horn. That was horrifying. Oh so because when we tour, I always have a spare English horn in the trunk. I went to get my spare English horn to play it. But of course, it was not the English horn that I'd made the reeds for, and it was not in the perfect adjustment. And I remember sitting on that stage in Paris thinking, good Lord, it's Pierre Boulez conducting, and here I am playing an English horn that really doesn't feel very good. This is really a drag. Ever since that time, I have been, as some people might call it, kind of a maniac about <laughs> protecting my instruments and making sure that nobody gets near them. I also bought a much more stable instrument stand mm. that was not as susceptible to being knocked over. So that was, that's a pretty good horror story. That was <laughs> that's terrifying. It was. <laughs> Anytime somebody, you should, do you have like a beeper system where every time somebody comes within five feet, it starts like beep, 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 beep. <laughs> no, but I can tell you that my colleagues, my delightful colleagues in the viola section all know that they can't get too close. That's, good. <laughs> That's for the best. <laughs> and people also know when they're walking past me, you know, getting up to their seats or whatever, they have to be more careful because, you know, I try to be nice about it, but I think everybody knows that they just have to be more attentive because I don't like it when my instruments get knocked over and Mark Chudnam doesn't like it either because he has a lot of work to do to get keys unbent and get my instruments back in order. Mm -hmm. You send them the bill. <laughs> what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, I wish I could say that the music business is as promising now as it was when I joined, but that's not the case. Sadly, because of the lack of funding and importance in this country, we've all seen far too many small orchestras either reduce their seasons dramatically or go under completely. And that really makes me sad. One of the things that I have said to college students is that as much as they love being an oboe major, I believe that it's critical to either double major or get an academic minor so that when they graduate, they have a skill set that they can use in the event that they don't achieve their dreams within the time frame that they have set. I used to tell my students that if they weren't where they wanted to be by age 30, they needed to start thinking about maybe changing careers or doing something in addition to playing the oboe. I'm not sure that's realistic anymore, 
because the jobs are so few and far between. But I think as much as we love being artists, and Lord knows we all do, I think it's really, really important to have other things that you are interested in doing and can do well. I think it's more important than ever these days to diversify your education and your skills. The other thing I would say is you need to work harder than you think you possibly are capable of working. And that paid off for me. Um, part of it was working with Grover, but part of it was also going to Oberlin, studying with Jim Caldwell and having such phenomenal uh, classmates in the Yobo studio. We all inspired each other. And I think if you really want this life, you have to really work harder than you think you can to get it. But I don't think that you should ever behave in the music business as though if you knock somebody else down or if you knife somebody else in the back, that's going to move you forward. Never, never, never. I've never done that in my career and I don't ever plan to do that. I think you have to focus on your own work, doing your very best and working, studying with players who you feel can honestly help you achieve your goals. That's really important. And if that means getting on a plane, although these days it's not so easy to get on a plane, uh, but if that means spending several days working with someone, then maybe that's what you need to do. And the other thing is don't, don't give up. Don't give up. Um, but also realize that the standard of players all around the world continues to rise and rise and rise. I would not want to be taking an audition these days. It's really hard. Uh, it was hard enough when I was doing it, but it's, there's a lot of competition out there. And you have to focus on your own abilities and your own work and do the very, very best that you can. I would like to add a little bit about my decision to be a performer. I credit Grover with that. I started working with him when I was a senior in high school. And at that time, I was going to be a music educator uh, because even though I wanted to play in a symphony orchestra, I didn't think it was possible for me to achieve a symphonic career. I started working with Grover and he said, nope. He said, you know, it's getting better and better now for women in orchestras. You are coming along at the right time, but you're going to have to work harder than you think you are capable of working, but you can do this. And my parents, because they were musicians and music educators, they knew how difficult it was going to be for me. But I had the chance to try and I was working with someone who believed in me, Grover believed in me, but he was never easy on me. The standards were always very high. And as a woman coming along in a profession that was really dictated primarily by men, I've been really heartened to see the change in symphony orchestras, not only in the US, but around the world. I think the Los Angeles Philharmonic is now nearly half women. And it certainly wasn't that percentage when I joined the orchestra. So for me, winning that audition, especially when in the finals, 
it was two men and one woman. And still somehow I got that job. And I'd like to think that that has been an inspiration to other women, English horn players, oboists and English horn players saying, yes, it can be done. Uh, and of course now it's not such an issue, but that was 32 years ago. Things have changed a lot and for the better, I think. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Double Read Dish. It has been an absolute joy to talk with you and we really cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. We hope you enjoyed that episode and that you'll follow us on social media, especially so you can partake in voting for our spooky redecorating contest. You can find those entries on Facebook and Instagram, where we hope you will also follow us. And you can listen anywhere you get your podcasts. But if you're on Apple Music, please rate and leave us a review. Galit, who's coming up next? Next, we have a riveting interview with Albie Miklish, professor of bassoon at Arizona State University. Jackie! We got to end this nerd parade. Go make read. Spooky Halloween.